Well, good morning again. If you would, go ahead and find a seat. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning, and thanks for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. Uh, If I've never got the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie, and it's my great joy and privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Cross Point. Um, And so just, yeah, thanks for making the effort. We know it is never easy to kind of get here sometimes on a Sunday morning. Um, I'm feeling that in particular. My wife's out of town this weekend, and so the kids have been living on a steady diet of like chicken fingers and pizza, all right? And uh, we're just glad we we actually made it, all right? So it's great to see you all, and we get to continue this series called Witnesses. And here's kind of the big idea. We've been looking at the book of Acts, which is this story of kind of how the church got started. And so if you've ever wondered like, hey, what preceded like even who we are, like why are we doing what we're doing here this morning? Uh, We had this opportunity to go and sort of study the history of it. But it's not this moment of like, okay, we learned about Jesus, like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and now we get to Acts, and it's all about us as the church. Rather, it's how Jesus is still actively at work. Jesus is building the church, but he's working in and through us. And so we, on the one hand, we get to just witness all the ways that he's at work. And if you're wondering if he is, the fact that you're here this morning, he is building his church, Jesus, and we just get to witness that, all right? He is actively at work but he also does invite us to bear witness that we get to talk to people about the good news of Jesus. And that's what we're gonna be in this morning as we continue to look at this theme that comes up over and over and over again in the book of Acts about what does it look like for us as followers of Jesus, even if we feel like we don't got it all figured out, we still have lots of questions ourselves, we don't view ourselves necessarily as, as preachers or teachers, but we still have this calling to tell people about Jesus. And so what does that actually look like? And this morning, we're gonna be in Acts chapter 17. So I'd encourage if you got a Bible, turn there. We're going to make our way through these verses. If you did not bring a Bible, there are paperback ones on a couple of the back tables there. Get up at any point, grab one of those, turn to page 1026 is where this text will start. Or make use of cpwp.life on your phone. Swipe over the second card you'll see says message notes. And anything that is on the screen behind me will be included there. There's space for you to actually take notes yourself. You can email them to yourself afterwards, all right? Uh, The scripture passage will be up there as well. And so we are in this spot in the book of Acts where there's a man named the Apostle Paul, and he is on these journeys. They're called his missionary journeys, and he's going to various cities and communities around the ancient world telling people about Jesus. And last week, Eric did a great job. He preached about how the church got started in a place called Philippi, and this morning, we're gonna be in a place called Athens, and it's where the Apostle Paul finds himself here in Acts chapter 17. So I wanna read this so we have the full context, and then we will go back and kind of make our way through it. But as I read this, would you go ahead and stand a moment while I read God's word? Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, it says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19. And they took him, they brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, verse 21 says this, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the faces of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. So as I told you, in the book of Acts, we are continually seeing People like the Apostle Paul and others, all right, that are going out and they're going into very different contexts, lots of different places, communities, people with their own sort of, you know, assumptions about what the world is, worldviews about, you know, what this life is actually about. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a take on reality. Everybody has something in their life that they're, that they're actually giving their life to, some pursuit. And Paul keeps coming into these various cities amongst others, all right, and he's challenging them. He's connecting with those storylines. He's confronting them at times. And so what I want us to see here this morning in this beautiful text, this amazing text in Acts 17, is the way that Paul both connects with those in that particular city of Athens, but also in love confronts it, begins to critique that culture, all right? And what he's doing functionally is evangelism. All right. I was reading an article that came out maybe in the last two to three weeks uh, by the Barna Group. All right, they do all sorts of you know research studies on where things are heading, particularly in the kind of the religious sector of society. And in this particular article, here's what they talked about, and here's the the headline from it, it says, uh, "Almost half of practicing, all right, so practicing Christian millennials say evangelism." Is wrong. Now, a couple things. Before, if you're like, oh yeah, those millennials, and you think I'm ripping on that, that is not it at all, all right? All right? Some of us raise millennials, and so maybe this is on us, I don't know, all right? But the reality is this there is this trend to downplay evangelism, and I don't think it's just limited to one generation, all right? The reality is something has gone awry. There's been some point in the history of the church where we stopped talking about this calling to engage people. Maybe we stopped equipping people. Maybe we stopped talking about the the passion that Jesus has for the lost. Maybe we lost sight of the fact that Jesus wept over his city, Jerusalem. Maybe we've lost sight of the fact that there are friends and family members and co-workers, neighbors, people that you're in relationship with that don't know Jesus, that they are enslaved, that they're stuck in patterns of sin and this idea of idolatry that we'll look at here in this text. And for whatever reason, we find ourselves in a place where even amongst those who profess the name of Jesus actually sort of dial it back a bit and say, you know what, though? I actually don't know if I'm called to this or if we should even do this. And I understand that there's a lot of baggage that comes with this term evangelism. Maybe that's what the reaction is to. Maybe if we pressed in more and there's more detail given in this article, maybe we'd see, oh, what you're talking about with evangelism, yeah, I'm against that too. 
Because maybe there's just this, this conception of it, just like you're yelling and screaming judgment at random strangers as they walk down, down the road. They're just trying to go into their movie and they're getting screamed at. I don't know what it is. But when we talk about evangelism the way that Jesus talks about it, the way the Apostle Paul talks about it, the way the book of Acts talks about it, it's this idea of we get to be heralds of the good news. Like, realize this, every single one of us that are here, we are evangelists for certain things. Like, there are things that we think are good. Like, we are heralds of good news. And so you like, a, maybe there's a new restaurant that's opened up. My guess is you've told somebody about that. You posted it on Instagram. You took the picture there. You're letting people know. You know what that is? It's very simplest form. That is evangelism. You're trying to spread the good news about something. Maybe you went on a vacation somewhere and you're like, oh my goodness, if you ever get the opportunity, you gotta go. It's unbelievable, all right? I did that for some friends recently and they went and I probably overwhelmed them because I'm like, hey, here's 19 things that you need to make sure you do in the three days that you're there, right? I mean, just this long list. What is that? It's evangelism. And yet, those are for things that are fleeting and things that are not of utmost significance. It's great to promote a restaurant or a trip or you know, some, some you know, life hack that you're passionate about or whatever, maybe passing an article along, that's great. But we're talking about how you can be in the presence of God, to know God, to enjoy God, to be restored to how you originally created to be. And we get to be heralds of that. And so what this passage is doing for us, all right, is helping us see a bit of why we're called to this, all right, and maybe how we can engage in it. What are things that we can learn? What are some things that we can glean from Paul's interaction, all right? And the first thing I want to call to your attention is this, that what Paul does here in the language of verse 16, it says he finds himself in Athens. Now, literally, he had just been run out of the past two towns that he was in, all right? Silas and Timothy are kind of left there, and they send Paul on his way. And so he's just got some downtime, downtime in Athens, all right? Now, if that's me, I might be thinking, cool, it's been a busy stretch, all right? I'm just gonna get some, I'm just gonna get some time for, for Paul, right? I'm just gonna kind of chill. There, apparently, there's some great things you can go and see in Athens. I'll talk about that more in a moment, all right? That's not Paul's disposition. It tells us when he, while he was waiting for them, so he's waiting for his friends to arrive, he's waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw the city was full of idols. That the first thing you and I are called to ask the church is we need to see the stories that people are living, that everybody's living according to a narrative or a particular story. Maybe another way to think about it is everybody everywhere in all times and in all places are being discipled. That there are competing messages of what the good life is. And the Athenians were, they, they had bought into a particular narrative about what it meant to live in that time and that place and what ultimate meaning and reality was about. Everybody is doing that. Even the people in your life that you think are, they are not interested in religion at all, like everybody I think we'll see in this is very religious. We are all, we have this fervor and this energy that we give to things because we think it's going to provide some level of significance for us. We're all people, we're starved for meaning. Like we wanna know what is this world about? And so there's a calling here. Do you see their story? And so Paul finds himself in this place called Athens. And here's a present day picture. You maybe see some of that. I mean, this is really incredible to think about. Here's some of the ruins of Athens. And like that stuff, the apostle Paul would have seen there. The Parthenon and all these other beautiful structures that would have been you know, fully in their, their just kind of glorious display. And Athens was this place still, even though the Romans were ruling the world at that point, it was this place that was so revered. It was viewed as sort of the epicenter of all, like kind of cultural, intellectual, philosophical, um, 
Uh, like that, those are the things it was known for. Like that, that was the hub of activity for those things. And so this is where people would go to engage in these dialogues. You read about it here that they loved kind of new ideas. What's new? What's coming on the scene? And they love to just sit around and philosophize about the, those things, have a good cup of coffee, whatever it is, right? Like they would sit back and they would do that. And so this was this kind of hub of all of this activity. And Paul, this is where he is. Like he literally walked, this is the beautiful thing about the Bible, like it's grounded in history. He would have seen these structures. He would have walked on these paths. He engaged in this particular city, in a city that had this history of great intellectual thought and contribution. When you think of the, the history of Athens, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, like that's a pretty good lineup of, of people that have come from your town, right? And so part of their identity was about always working through like what are the the new ways to view the world and worldviews and issues like that so Paul finds himself there and he's like all right I'm not going to shy away he's actually going to engage and it says he saw that the city was full of idols and we'll begin to we'll continue to unpack this but this is a theme that runs all throughout the Bible you spend if you're new to Crosspoint if you're new to the Bible you spend any amount of time with us and studying the, the Bible you'll see this theme comes up over and over again where there's a calling for us to repent of our idolatry. And when Paul shows up in Athens, there literally were these you know, figures. I mean, they were carved out of you know, metal and stone and these things that were fashioned. In fact, one historian writing around the time of Paul said this, just historically, there were around 10,000 people in the city of Athens at the time that Acts 17 is being written, and there were some 30,000 idols of, to the various gods that were there. So it was easier to find a god than it was a person, all right? I mean, it's just this overwhelming sense, and this is the space that Paul walked into. And instead of just kicking back or instead of having a disposition of like, man, this place is lost and it's wicked and, you know, and I just need to like kind of stay huddled by, by myself until my buddies get here and we can go somewhere else, he seeks to engage. And though the particulars look different, here's what has to grip your heart and my heart. We still wrestle with the same issue of idolatry, not just out there in the world, but here in the church. Like it's in my heart, it's in your heart. There are things that we carried in here this morning, even as followers of Jesus, that we still think we need Jesus. But if I could just have this go right in my career, this relationship or this amount of money or go on this trip or whatever it happens to be, to be liked, to be accepted. John Stott in his commentary on the book of Acts said it this way, idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols too. An idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Covetousness is, an, is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatries. So can fame, wealth and power, sex, food, alcohol and other drugs, parents, spouse, children and friends, work, recreation, television and possessions, even church, religion, and Christian service. If any of those things become the primary thing that you're pursuing, it has become not, it's no longer just operating as a good gift from the Lord, it's becoming an idol. It is something that is this God substitute, a functional savior. And our heart is always going out looking for those things. And again, we can look at Athens and be like, that's crazy, they had 30,000 little carvings and these idols, and the reality is, if Paul was to find himself here in Winter Park, Florida in 2019, he would look around and be astounded at the idolatry that exists here. It's just the fact of the matter. Now, sometimes it's disguised a little bit more, all right? Like my guess is you didn't have some sort of wood carving you fashioned and put it in your backyard this week and your neighbor saw you bowing down to it repeatedly, right? That may not be the particular thing, but there are all sorts of things that we make sacrifices for on the altar of, of career or finances or whatever it happens to be, right? 
So there's these things that can grip our heart. So we've got to ask ourselves, like Paul, if we're going to be the church, let me ask you this. Are you and I, as Paul did, he sees that the city is full of idols. Are you and I rightly seeing? There's this fascinating thing, people that study how the brain actually works. There's a part of your brain that's called the reticular activating system. I don't know if you know this or not, uh, but you have all experienced it in one way or another. And here's how I know. Maybe you've, have you ever been car shopping before? All right, maybe some of you have done this recently. All right, and you start paying attention to like, I think I want this particular model car and I want this particular color. And then maybe you actually acquired that car. And now you're driving around town and suddenly what are you noticing? Everybody and their brother has this car, right? Or like you just see it popping up all over the place. Are there suddenly more cars? Are you that big of an influencer, right? You made that one post on Instagram about your your new wheels and suddenly everybody went out and got one. I don't think that's it. It's because the brain, there are so many things that are flying at us all the time, right? And it has to have ways to sort of filter out. But when you and I start focusing on particular things, we start seeing them out there like, oh, look at that. I didn't notice that before. And I tell you this, not just because it's a fascinating thing about how our brain works, but I have to wonder too, for us as Christians, it's not to look out and critique the world and say, look at all the idolatry. Have you and I, have you examined your own heart? Maybe a way to think about it is the reticular activator kind of system kicked in, meaning you have examined your life and you know, oh, this thing, it it continues to be a struggle. This thing grips my heart. I, I have this idol of comfort. And when things get stressful, I just run to these certain things because I think I need that in the moment. Or I've got to have control or power. Oh my goodness, I need people's approval so desperately. It's sort of a, a root idol that just grips your heart. Have you paid attention to that? And it's not to be on this like hunt for idols and you're just depressed all the time, but rather you start to actually see like, oh, there's all these competing narratives. Almost like the reticular activating. Is it kicking in? You're like, oh, I see that there. Oh, I see that there. My kids would attest to this, all right, to the point of great annoyance. I know, hey, once you get to the point of great annoyance, you might actually be doing something right as a parent. That's maybe my philosophy, right? And so we will literally, any sort of media consumption that's happening, it could be a song that we're listening to as I'm driving them to school or on the way home from swim practice or we're watching a movie. It is one of the most common things they would tell you is that dad will, hey, 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 hit pause, all right? And I will grab the phone or I'll you know, grab the remote and I will hit pause and they will go, ugh, Why? Because I want to talk to them about, hey, did you hear that line? What do you think that's about? What do you think that's pointing to? What's the worldview? What's the philosophy? It's very annoying, I understand, right? It's not dad of the year kind of stuff, probably. But it's so important to me that I'm like, hey, we got to talk about this. There is a worldview that's being espoused. And we can just sort of consume all of that and not think critically. Or we can actually pause and engage and say, okay, what's the story there? Right? And that's something good. You can celebrate that. Yes and amen to that. But it's not ultimate, right? Like what if this person singing the song gets what they actually hope you know, that they, that they want in life. Okay, but will it satisfy? And it's this way sort of, sort of like, I almost think of that, that activating system. It's just like, hey, we as the church, not in a judgmental way, but because it's been, our hearts have been gripped by the grace of Jesus. We see the ways we're still prone to idolatry that we would stop and say, oh, yes, I see that. And then we begin to see it out in the broader culture, but not to judge. And this is where it goes. We're not only called to see, but we're called to feel their story. Look at verse 16 again. Now, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked. And there's a couple layers to this. And we have to ask ourselves this morning, are you and I, are we provoked by the idolatry? First here in our own hearts and in our community as the church, but then going out into the broader culture, do we now have eyes to see, oh, 
that thing that somebody's giving their time and energy and attention to, it's not going to satisfy. And what it does, and when Paul says he's provoked, on one level, he has this deep sadness, this empathy, this compassion. He's like, oh my goodness, there are these thousands of people here and they're the brightest they're the the most intellectual they're the most put together they are revered outside of even just the little area of Athens like literally all around the world and, and we know as if you've ever taken a philosophy 101 class still influential to this time in this place and to this day and he looks out and his heart is grieved because Paul is a man who grieves his own idolatry. He grieved all the things, and he continues to grieve all the things that he had built an identity on, about having everything put together, and the right studies, and the right Bible studies, and the right family lineage, and from the right tribe, and how he was so obedient. And he realized at the end of the day, none of that was getting him into the presence of God. All of those things were things he was looking at to save him. And Jesus comes and opens Paul's eyes to see his need, to see the idolatrous life that he'd actually been living and how he'd been missing out. And so Paul understands what it means to be provoked. And so he can now look out over the broader culture, over the city of Athens, and there's this great compassion. And the language that's being used here, if we go back to this phrase, he saw that the city was full of idols. This idea of fullness, it's literally it's the only place where it shows up in the Bible. And it's a word that's sort of hard to translate, but the idea that it's getting at is this, and there's this picture here you see of like a home being flooded. It means to be overwhelmed, to be something to be like overpowering you, to be submerged. So Paul looks out over the city and he's provoked deeply because at one level he just has this compassion. Like if, if you saw this happening in your neighborhood, right? The waters were rising. People's homes and cars and memories and all these things are just being de destroyed. All the things that were in the home. Like, I would think our hearts would be, would be grieved, right? There's compassion there. This is a picture from uh, outside of Houston, Texas, and some of the, the flooding over the last few years with some of the, the storms. It's not too far before we, we have some relatives that, that live. And things like this were happening to people that we know. And there was this like, oh my goodness, this compassion. So on the one hand, Paul is feeling that. It's this idea of like, the whole city is submerged in idolatry. The waters are rising, and it's going to do more than just destroy material possessions. It ultimately is going to destroy people. Like anytime we give our ultimate allegiance to something other than Jesus Christ, that thing, it may make a lot of promises. It might feel good for a while, but it cannot actually come through in the end, and it will turn on you, and it will devour you. And it tells us in Psalm 115, you will become like that thing. So that little wooden idol or whatever, that, or that career or whatever it happens to, to be in present day, that thing will not satisfy and you will become like the thing you are worshiping, lifeless. That's where the story's heading. And so provoked is this idea of like Paul felt deeply. Are you and I feeling deeply? Are we seeing sort of our city being submerged under the waters of idolatry? Do you feel that? Does it provoke something within you? Does it provoke something within me? Paul saw that the city was full of idols. And so there's this compassion, there's this deep sadness, there's this grieving, but it goes further than that. I want to read to you again a quote from John Stott in the, on this passage, and he says this, how then in the face of growing opposition to it, meaning there's opposition sometimes to mission and evangelism, can Christians justify the continuance of world evangelization? Well, the commonest answer is to point to the Great Commission, and indeed, obedience to it provides a strong stimulus, where Jesus said, go and make disciples. We've well, got to start there, right? It's an obedience issue. But Stott says this, 
Compassion is higher than obedience, however, namely love for people who do not know Jesus Christ and who on that account are alienated, disorientated, and and indeed lost. That's where people find themselves. It provoked Paul and he's looking out over his city and he's like, man, I want more for these people. But it goes further than simply obedience and compassion. It drives at something else that's even more ultimate. But the highest incentive of all is zeal or jealousy for the glory of Jesus Christ. This idea of provoked is when God is provoked to anger and jealousy because his name is being defamed. The people that he has created are now worshiping the creation rather than the creator, all right? And when that happens, his name is not being held with the renown, with the the fame, the glory that it is due. And this is what should drive us towards evangelism. God has promoted him, that is Jesus, to the supreme place of honor in order that every knee and tongue should acknowledge his lordship. Whenever he has denied his rightful place in people's lives, therefore, we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for his name. So we look out, and there's this provoking that should happen. Yes, out of sadness, all right, like, oh, the waters are rising, but there also should be, there are men, women, and children who are not revering the name of Jesus, and our Lord is jealous for his name to be worshiped. And if you think for a moment that him getting his glory that is due is gonna rob you of joy, you've completely missed the storyline of the Bible. That when God is glorified, when he is worshiped, it's there in that place that we actually find our joy, all right? God wants you to experience that. It's what Jesus invites us into to to come and to rest in him in this abundant life. It's not about material possessions. It's about being in the presence of God. It's actually knowing him and experiencing his grace. And so we are called, we are called to see the stories that people are living by. We're called to feel that, to stop and to consider and to begin to engage people. And this is where the story goes. Look with me at verses 17 to 21. Then we're also called to engage people in their story. So Paul, it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. You wanna know what Paul talked about when he went into these places? Whether or not they were, they had a backstory and they're familiar with the Jewish scriptures, whether or not they were completely pagan, whether or not they were the intellectuals, the philosophical sort of elite of their day, he talked about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, I'll explain that more in a moment, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I love that the Bible is honest to say when people first hear this, it it is strange. Have have you had that moment before? I had that moment this past Thursday in our our community group as we're just sitting in our living room. We're having this, I thought, a really fruitful, beautiful conversation discussing the passage from from last week and the sermon and and all of that and just kind of had this moment of kind of like, Can we just acknowledge for a moment, like, this is strange. There's probably not a lot of other people in the neighborhood doing what we're doing right now, all right? And even just to hear it through the ears of somebody that maybe is not familiar with, it's like, hey, at first glance, like this, what are we talking about here? This is strange. We can acknowledge that. But our calling as the church is to come alongside and not judge people because they don't know or make them feel stupid because they've got a bunch of questions. Say, no, no, bring the questions. So if that's you here this morning, we are so glad that you're here. We're like Part of us starting a church is praying that people would come and that they would bring their questions and their doubts and we can walk alongside. Because here's the reality. Somebody explained it to me. Somebody explained it to you. 
somebody who was patient with me, somebody who was patient with you, you probably asked a lot of dumb questions along the way, right? Like we all do. There's all kinds of things. We're like, wait, what, what about this? So there's this invitation. What we see the Apostle Paul doing is he engages in their story. But I think it's far, far easier, at least it is in my life. Let me read you something, see if this resonates with you. I can read this, I can get excited about it, I can think, yes and amen, we need to do that, all right? And even in this moment, maybe feeling some of that provoked, and then we'll sing a few more songs, all right? And we will talk to a few friends, and we will get to our car, and it's so easy to just leave this place and forget it. Rather than having it continue, that as you leave the YMCA today, and as you start your drive, whether it be to lunch or home or wherever it takes you, and you go down the roads and you look out, May your heart, may my heart be provoked to see that there are men, women, there are children that do not know the grace of God, that aren't enjoying his presence, to be provoked. And so there's a call to engage. And it tells us that Paul goes in and he goes to the synagogue and he goes to those places, but he also goes to the marketplace, which is called the Agora. And we don't probably have a, a great equivalent to this. It literally is sort of the, the epicenter that kind of the, where all the kind of culture and ideas and things were debated in uh, town square sort of thing. And so it feels very different than sometimes our kind of suburban sprawl kind of places that we live in. But here's all this activity and Paul goes there. But again, it's easier, I think, to talk about mission than to actually do it. Tim Chester in his book, Total Church, says this. A woman once told me about the difficulties she faced as a Brit fitting into American culture. One of her struggles with people who would say to her, let's do lunch. She expected them to phone and arrange a date. They never did. Let's do lunch was just an idiomatic way of saying farewell. Well, we all say let's do mission, but does it carry any more intent than let's do lunch? And I can be guilty of that for sure. My guess is if you're honest, as a follower of Christ, like, can be guilty of that, that we sort of say, yes and amen, we're gonna do this, and yet we get busy, and we fail to ask the Lord to open our eyes for the opportunities that are before us. We squelch maybe the, the work of the Spirit when we feel this prompting of like, yeah, I need to talk with that person, I need to just go engage with them, or I need to follow up and see how that thing was that they mentioned a couple weeks ago, and sometimes we can ignore that, what would it look like for us to be a church that we pay attention to those things, that we realize that the Lord has things for us and it's going to cause us to be interrupted from our plans because he has plans that are better. And so Paul engages and the way that he does this, here's some things I think we can learn in this, is it tells us that every day, did you notice the language there, all right? And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Paul goes to the same place over and over and over again. So maybe if you're wired like me and you're like, I have one good restaurant, I want to go over and over again, right? Um, you can just say you got a verse for it there, all right? And if your spouse argues with you, just say, hey, we're supposed to go to the same place over and over again. But in all seriousness, there is this call, like, just pay attention. Like, view the places where you are as an opportunity to engage in conversation. That doesn't mean you're gonna jump up on the, the table at the coffee shop and, and start preaching to people. But will you be willing to engage in people? Will you begin to ask people questions? Because when it says that Paul, this kind of idea here of him debate, debating or had conversations and that, that sort of thing, or him reasoning, the language there is really a reference back to that culture of the sort of Socratic method, which is an idea of, hey, asking a lot of questions. You and I are called to listen in a redemptive way to be listening to the stories that people are living according to, and then to begin to engage and to draw things out. As followers of Jesus, 
One of our callings is, is to continually grow in our ability to, to find people fascinating and interesting. I mean, it's amazing, all right? There, there, there are no mere mortals. Like, nobody's just ordinary. C.S. Lewis talked about that. Like, every single person you interact with, they've got a story. They've got a past. They've got things that they celebrated this past week and things that they are mourning and grieving that they haven't shared with anybody. And maybe they're not ready to share it with you, but people want to tell their stories. They're trying to figure things out. And so will you and I listen in a redemptive way? And so it tells us, for Paul here, he goes and there's these two dominant groups. It gives us some indication, like there's just random people that he's meeting, but there's also two dominant sort of philosophical groups. Now, I don't know if you had any interaction this week with somebody like, oh, yep, that was an, I was talking with an Epicurean there. Like that may not be the language that we use, all right? But these things are still prevalent. These worldviews still influence where we are today. And so for the people that Paul's interacting with, there was one group and if you wanted to try and summarize in overly simplistic ways, right, there's far more detail that one could say. These were groups of people that had sort of embraced, all right, there's multiple gods, but they are distant, that there's no afterlife. You're never going to have to give an account, that there's no judgment. And really everything is about chance, all right, and therefore everything is about pleasure. You and I are just eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die. It's that sort of mindset, all right? Have you ever met anybody like that? Is this just, oh, that's ancient, you know, Athenian culture? No, this is still very prevalent. Relativists in regards to morality. Well, you find your truth that that works for you, but everything is chance. There's no bigger story. So Paul's having interaction. And what Paul's going to do in a moment is he's going to retell their story. He's going to talk about the one true God in a way that says, hey, those things, all right, the things that are incomplete about your story, this finishes it. This points you to something deeper and true. Or for the Stoics, they were people that believed sort of like God is in everything, but what it created in them not was, was not this close personal thing, but this is a fatalism. Well, what's gonna happen is going to happen. And our call is to kind of keep your chin up and you just endure it. There's not a lot of joy. There's not a lot of hope. And they were regarded a bit more as the moralists in that culture. Both of these dominant storylines for the people that were living there lacked joy. They lacked hope. And as you and I get to know the storylines of people, if they're honest, we will see in this cultural moment, maybe you feel overwhelmed. You're like, man, I can't even turn on the news without being stressed out or open up an app on my phone. Like, I, I just don't even know what to do. And you could be overwhelmed by that and you could be discouraged. But what if we reframed it? What if we saw the fact that the secularism and the dominant worldviews that we are living in right now, that they're actually crumbling and they're not resulting in the things that people hoped they would be. And there's this opportunity for a wave of the gospel to come in to actually showcase to people, here's what life is, what it looks like and where it's to be found. And I'm not perfect and my church isn't perfect, but we found hope in Jesus who is perfect. And so yeah, we can get stressed out and freak out and think, oh, it's this big bad world. Or we can see, oh my goodness, I'm so grateful. We get to live in this time. Did you turn on the news? It was crazy. Yes, gospel opportunities freaking everywhere, right? Like that's what we're called to. And so what if our eyes were open and we could begin to engage? And so as we look at people a couple thousand years ago, we realize the stories are the same. There's people that are lacking joy, they're lacking hope, and they're lacking purpose. And so Paul comes in, and here's what we'll close with. He begins then to say, I need to tell the story of Jesus so that it retells or sort of reframes your story. That there are good desires that you have, but they're misguided right now. But there's a story you can be part of. And we get to do the same thing. Look with me at beginning in verse 22. 
So Paul gets invited, we learn about this, this Areopagus, which is basically another way to talk about it. Maybe you hear the phrase ever, Mars Hill. It's this place here, just within, around Athens, where there was this council of people that would gather, and it was the intellectual, the philosophical elite of the day, and they made a lot of decisions and determinations on kind of cultural and, you know, thoughts and religion and philosophy, all of that. And so Paul's brought in, like Athens in general had this vibe of like people that were very smart, and now he's brought to like the elite of the elite. And so here's this gathering. He gets this invitation to go, all right? So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And so I want to just stop there for a moment. Think about this. As you and I seek to engage, one of the things that we've got to do as followers of Jesus is find those places of connection. Think about this for a moment. If you know anything about Paul's story, right? Paul was like a Jew of the Jews. And for the Jews, they were monotheistic. The Jews wanted nothing to do with 30,000 gods in the city. There was one God. The Lord our God, he is one. They would repeat that, the Shema. They would repeat that every single day. It was instilled in them from a very early age. And so think about it for a moment. That Paul's entire upbringing, all his cultural kind of baggage that he would have brought with him would have said, Athens is an absolute abomination. I want to vomit walking down through the streets of this city right now. Just these gods everywhere, these supposed gods But rather than doing that and lashing out, he sees within it, he sees, okay, here's a group of people, it's something that he can actually affirm, all right? Now, we live in a culture that just wants to affirm all the time and never critique, that's not what we see here. Paul affirms something that he can, he makes a point of connection, that there's this intersection of stories, but then he begins to critique this culture because he wants them to know Jesus, not because he wants to be puffed up and self-righteous. He's like, no, no, you need to meet Jesus, so he says, men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious. What would have been, I imagine that the difficulty for him to speak that, apart from the work of the gospel in his own life, but now he sees it. And though he thinks it's a city that's submerged, the floodwaters of idolatry are rising, he says, hey, you're very religious. Like, I see the drive and I see the desire. And so even for today, like, what does that look like today? There are all kinds of things. If you think for a moment we don't live in a religious society, I think you've missed it. People are very religious They're just religious about different things, not Jesus, like a hyper-consumerism. They're they're very religious about just expressing yourself, your individual, it's my story, look at me, look at what I'm doing out in the world. Like there's all kinds of things people give energy to, all kinds of things people sacrifice for, all kinds of God substitutes out there. And the calling then is to say, hey, that desire, that hunger, that fervor that you have I want, to, I want to point you, I want you to dwell on that a bit and ask yourself, hey, what's that pointing to? And that's what Paul does. So he walks around, and I don't know if you've heard this the first time I read through it, all right? So he says you're very religious, and as I pass it along, this is verse 23, and observe the objects of your worship. So think about this, 10,000 people, 30,000 gods. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So there's speculation, right? I don't know if this is just kind of an insurance policy for the people of Athens. Like, dude, we might have gotten it wrong. There's probably some God out there who's really ticked off that we didn't acknowledge him or her. And so let's just have this generic one that says, to an unknown God, we've got our bases covered. We can sleep at night knowing, like, well, at least we didn't tick that one off, right? So it might be some of that that's happening. But just at a more fundamental level, even that being present there speaks to 
the longing, the hunger. It's what Augustine spoke of, that you know, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee, until we find our rest in God. The people of Athens, like all these manifestations of all these the gods, this idolatry, the city being submerged in that is showcasing in a very powerful, profound way. There's a hunger. There's a deep longing to be in the presence of God. In a podcast I was listening to this week, an author and pastor by the name of Mark Sayers says this. He says, we are in temples devoid of the presence of God. Think about it. 30,000 idols, the Parthenon, all these beautiful structures, all these altars, all these things. You know who's not there? You know who's left the building? Like God's not there. The very presence of God. We are created to connect with our creator, to be in his presence. This is Genesis 1 and 2, walking with God. That's how we've been created. Unless you think that's an issue for Athens a couple thousand years ago, you and I and the people we interact with have these systems, these things that we pursue, all of the modern day temples. It's any good thing that we're pursuing that we make ultimate and the presence of the Lord is not there. And we buy into the lie of the enemy that says, okay, it might not be there. So I made that purchase, or I got that home, or I got this new relationship, or I got whatever, and it didn't satisfy. Well, here's an idea. Why don't I get more of what I already own or a better, newer version of it, and maybe that will satisfy. And it's insanity. And yet that's what we give our lives to. They're devoid of the presence of God. And so what does Paul do? He's like, I've got good news. And here's what we're gonna close with. He just says, I need you to know who this God is. And so look at the description here, verse 24. He says to these people, this unknown God, I need to tell you about the one true God. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being a Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. That He is the creator, that everything he looks out at, and Paul says, everything points back to the reality of Jesus. Here's a group of people that didn't have the Bible. They didn't know, they didn't have any sort of Old Testament familiarity. You find yourself today in our culture, maybe people have a Bible in their home, but they've never opened it up or it's been a long, long time. You know what we can learn from the Apostle Paul here is go back to creation. Talk about the fact that there is a God, he has created everything. Here's a very profound statement. The Bible begins in Genesis 1. Yes, I went to seminary to learn that, all right? It's impressive. But sometimes we even start with Genesis 3 and we're like, yep, there's sin and the fall and you need Jesus and he died on the cross for your sins. Like, wait, 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 what, what does that even mean? Hey, can we go back and we talk about there's a God who created everything. You were meant to be in this perfect, harmonious relationship with him, to be in his presence, to enjoy him. And then that makes its way out horizontally to relationships with other people and with the creation. Let's start there. Let's tell the actual story of the Bible. And so Paul begins to do this. And then verse 25, he begins to speak about this God. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. I mean, like how weak of a God must you know, be if like, oh, we gotta make sure we, like, we keep doing these things because he needs us. He needs us to sacrifice for him. He needs us to do this. Like, no, no, no. Our God doesn't need anything. Since he himself, it's flipped, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he's like, hey, Athenians, like, you're doing all this stuff, making all these sacrifices. The true God doesn't need anything. In fact, you need him. And the breath you just took, it's because he gave it to you. And the fact that this earth is spinning around, you know, like right now and not just like hurtling off into outer space. I don't know if he would have went this way or not, but the reality of what we know now is God is sustaining that. But the word of his power, like Jesus is sustaining us right now. The fact that you can hear words being spoken and process that and think through these things and read the pages, uh, you know, the, the words on the pages here, all of that. It's because God is sustaining us. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. And when you start to think about the fact that 
you got the Epicureans, like, well, there's no real story. Like, no, no, there's an amazing story. And then for the Stoics, we're like, yeah, but God is impersonal. Here's the fascinating thing. Paul begins to say, listen, you can actually know this God. The Stoics used a word to talk about reality, to talk about systems of reality and of truth, and they called it the logos. If you've ever read through different portions of the scripture, like in John chapter one, you will see Jesus referred to as the logos. That rather than kind of an impersonal philosophical truth that the Stoics believe in, like there's sort of this force that was at work, the Bible, the God of the universe says, you know what, this, I'm gonna one-up you. This is way better. It's not an impersonal thing. It's truth. The Logos has shown up in flesh and blood and has dwelt among us and went to a cross to die in your place and my place and three days later rose again. That's the Logos. It's not impersonal. It's not fatalistic. It's a person to be known. In verses 26 to 28, Paul starts to get into this as he's confronting the stories. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should watch, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. How encouraging is that? I don't know where you are in your relationship with God, but God is actively, or like, listen, if you're here this morning, you can be assured of this, like he's in pursuit of you. And he wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to restore you to his presence. And then Paul, even just as an aside, you see these quotations, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Paul's quoting pop culture, like phrases from poets and people of influence in the Athenian culture. I'm not saying you, you gotta use discretion, all right? That doesn't mean, hey, I'm gonna go watch any movie I, I want because I'm just engaging with culture. Like there's a lot of trash out there, all right? At the same time, I love that he brings this in because the people there would have been like, hey, I've heard that before. I've read that before. I know that. Oh, this guy knows part of our culture. Rather than a retreating from culture, Paul's able to actually engage and he lets them know that there's a God who wants to know them personally, but he also loves them enough to speak these words that we see in 29 to 31. And this is the challenging part. This is very unpopular. Maybe you've liked it up to this point, but we gotta see that God in his love also lets us know that Jesus is coming back one day to judge everything, to set everything right, and that there'll be people that are invited into his presence forever, and there'll be people that'll be separated from the presence of God forever. That is when we talk about the realm of heaven and of hell. You're either in the presence of God or you're outside of the presence of God. Look at 29 to 31. Being then God's offspring, we, not, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's like, think it through. He's like, if we're God's offspring, why would, you know, I mean, look at us. Like, we're better than this objects of wood or stone. Like, okay, so that that's clearly can't be who God is. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Think about that for a moment. All people everywhere in all times. All people. Your neighbor, your friend, your family member that doesn't know Jesus. You here this morning if you've never repented. All people everywhere. People in Winter Park and people in Maitland and people in Castleberry and people wherever, right? That is God's calling. All people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. The story is heading somewhere. It's not this nihilistic thing. You're not just gonna be put in the ground and just return to you know, dust and that's the end of the story. The story is heading somewhere. And Jesus is coming back to judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed, that's God has appointed Jesus, and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You wanna know that this is going to happen? It's because Jesus was raised from the dead. 
You got questions about Christianity, where do you start? You gotta start with the resurrection. Like there are lots of other questions and things that you might bring, but let's just start there. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Did Jesus go to the cross and rise from the dead? Proving that his offering, the sacrifice of his life, the wrath that should have been poured out on you and me was instead poured out on him. It was accepted. It's what the fact that he rose again shows that Jesus had conquered Satan's sin and death. And so I'll close with these verses. One is out of Galatians and just be encouraged in this. We get to tell this story. It says at the end, there's some that mocked. There's gonna be people that mock you. They're gonna think you're nuts. They, they might actually be over anytime you gather for a family you know, dinner or a holiday or something. They might think you're crazy. And some are gonna be kind of curious. I wanna hear more on this and whether they really mean it or not, you may not know. But there are some that will actually come to a point of life, of trusting in Jesus. And we see that at the end here. People that understood that Jesus, yes, he's coming back to judge, but let's remember and celebrate that he was judged in our place. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. That Jesus hung on that tree to bring you back into the presence of God. To retell your story. That it has, it's a story now of purpose and of meaning and of direction. And he invites you into it. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus died in your place. That everything that should have been poured out on you and me was instead poured out on Jesus. Yes, he's coming back to judge but know that he was judged for you and you were invited into this story and you get to tell people that story. Prayer is that years from now, there'll be Barna studies and things that'll be done and the storyline will be different, that the storyline of the church will be people who faithfully proclaim. We can't control the results, we can't control the fruit, but what if we were known as a church that faithfully loved people and we engaged the people and we sought to point people to the reality of Jesus and that's our calling. That's what we get to participate in. So I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna give you some time just to, to respond. I would encourage you to not respond as those that mocked or even those that said, we need to hear more about this. Maybe Jesus today is calling you to make a decision to trust in him for the first time. If you want anybody to pray with you, there's members of our prayer team that'll be up to the remainder part of the, the service in the back corners. On the message notes at cpwp.life, if you're looking for even a guidance of prayer of like, how, how do I commit my life to Christ? There's a prayer that you can pray there. There's also this call for those of us that are followers of Jesus. Let's continue to, to remember and celebrate the good news of what Jesus has done. We get to rejoice in this gospel. And we too are invited to repent of the ways that we've pursued something other than Jesus as a sort of God substitute. And let's thank him for the grace and forgiveness. Let me pray and give you a moment to respond. Father, thank you for your love for us, your constant pursuit of us, that even when we are faithless, that you remain faithful. And Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to be judged, to be condemned in our place so that we might actually stand as people where we experience no condemnation because we are in you, that we've been given your righteousness, that you took over all of our sin and our, our shame, that you bore that on the cross and we have been gifted your spotless, blameless righteousness, that that's what we actually are clothed in. And so we give you praise for that. Holy Spirit, would you use us as your people to to sing of your praises, not just in this gymnasium, but it would flow out from here to tell the story of Jesus 
to engage in people's stories, to feel provoked. God, would you break us even now? Give us a heart for our community, for our city, for our loved ones. And we would love it if you would use us and the lives of people that they might actually come to know you. And God, I pray for any here this morning, God, that they're sensing your spirit, God, would they surrender to you this morning. And so God, we ask that you would hear our prayers for your glory and for our great joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.